Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. We are wrapping up our sermon series that we've entitled Ask, in which we've asked people outside the church to ask questions of Christians. And I want to remind you as we begin, these are real questions asked by real people of the church. And so what we're talking about this morning is not something that I've just conjured up that I want to talk to you about, but we're actually trying to answer a, a, a real question and give you a framework for processing these questions as you interact with them daily. And this question that we've been asked this morning is the only one in the series that was asked in multiple ways, multiple times. And so I want to read those questions for you. There are three, three versions that we've kind of summarized and distilled into one question. The first is this. Why should the buildings of New Life Church in Westland and Wilsonville be exempt from paying property taxes? The second question is like it. What good do your congregants do in the Westland, Wilsonville, and surrounding communities that offset the tax dollars that could come from your organization to these cities? And the third question approaches the heart of it. If you are a little Christ, in what ways is your neighborhood a better place as a result of your presence? So you've definitely got tiers of the questions. On the surface, what's up with this non-profit tax exemption stuff? But as you approach the heart, what is the church doing? What is the activity of the church to warrant its tax status? And throughout this, is, there is an assumption that the church, which everyone knows would proclaim good news, must also be good news in its neighborhood. And so we attempted to summarize those three questions, distill them into one, and what happened is it made this question much more difficult to answer than answering each of those three. The question is now, how can the church justify its existence? You've got buildings taken to property. How does the church justify its existence? You've got a message of good news and a bunch of people that are supposed to live it. What good are you doing? And so this morning, I want to attempt to answer that with three different justifications. The first one is a financial justification. We'll talk about some of the surface stuff, the tax questions. The second justification is an ontological justification, meaning the nature of the church itself justifies its existence. And the third justification is a societal justification, as we consider the values of society and how the church fits into the societal structure. And each of these passes at answering this question should and will reinforce to us, the church, our need to not merely proclaim good news, but to also be good news in our neighborhoods. So let's begin with the financial justification for the church's existence. This is it. The church gives more for the good of the neighborhood, than the amount it would be taxed. There's the justification, and now here's the evidence. This year, the church is expected or, or would have paid $36,000 in property taxes, which it is now exempt from because it is a not-for-profit organization. And so the question is, does the giving of the church to the neighborhood offset that cost? And 
I just want, maybe you don't know this, but the church is, is actively involved. New Life Church is actively involved in the neighborhood. Coffee Cart uh, serves coffee and muffins to high school students who park two hours before school begins in order to get a spot, giving them a place to be, which is a, one of the city's greatest high school issues. Foster Parent Night Out is another service or ministry of the church that serves foster parents, giving them a night off, a free babysitting, and giving foster kids a fun time uh, to play and hang out. Celebrate Recovery meets every Friday night here in this building, um, rem- uh, giving people freedom from hurts, habits, and hang-ups. <clears throat> the church supports Bridges to Change, owns recovery houses, has a mana cupboard, which we stock with food and distribute, and a benevolence fund, which we just will equip you to bless and serve people who are in need in your life. And the church um, has budgeted $22,000 this year for those services that it provides. In addition to the service hours taken to provide those services to the neighborhood. In addition to any gifts that you give individually to other projects here in the community, perhaps uh, Bags of Hope or Project Angel Tree. And so the justification is that the church gives more for the good of the neighborhood than the amount it would be taxed in gifts and service. And so I want to say thank you. Thank you for being a generous church that gives above its means in in money and in time for the good of the neighborhood. However, that's a boring sermon. And I don't want to answer this question merely on the superficial financial level because there are other reasons that the church is justified in its existence other than the dollars and cents contribution to the neighborhood. And so the, the second way I want to answer this question is to provide an ontological justification for the church or a justification regarding the nature of the church. And here it is. The church's intangible contribution to the common good by virtue of its nature of being in the church exceeds its financial burden. So now we're talking about, we're still talking about the financial contribution to the neighborhood, but we're saying we're not going to measure the just, we're not going to justify the church on, that, on those grounds. Because if I were to ask you The same question. Okay, here it is. And maybe it's even a challenge. Justify your existence. Most of you probably did not have dollar signs and you were calculating the amount that you give in dollars versus the amount that it costs society to keep you alive and thriving. In, in America today, the Department of Agriculture estimates it costs $13,000 a year to raise a child from the ages of 0 to 18 per year. How does a child justify their existence if you're measuring it based in dollars and cents? No, we would measure, we would justify the existence of a child based on a metric totally not financial. We would say the image of God is within them. 
They bring joy unbounded. They have a childlike pleasure and simplicity with which they see life. There's potential that is untapped and ready to be unleashed in a child. And so, of course, $13,000 a year, I I would pay double that. Ask the same question now of a hospital. Now, many hospitals are also not-for-profit, so the, the analogy is pretty parallel here, to justify its existence based on a financial metric, the, the dollars contributed to the community. Now, the hospital doesn't exist and doesn't justify its existence based on the dollars that it contributes. No, the gift of a hospital to a community is almost entirely intangible in that bodies are healed, families are preserved, quality of life is given. And so, the ontological justification of the church is that it too exists for more than a financial benefit to the neighborhood. And we're getting now to what the, what the church is and what the church does. The church, capital C, is the people of God, reconciled to God through Jesus, following the ways of God, partnering with God in his mission in the world. And then a local church, which when we talk about local churches, often we talk about buildings, or we think of buildings because this is a local church, is a local expression of the people of God, reconciled to God, following God, on mission with God. And so, it's not a building. We're not talking about property taxes here. We're not talking about square footage or acreage that a church takes up. We're talking about people. And the metrics of success for the church are not in dollars and cents or financial viability or solvency, but instead are found in in its obedience to two commandments, to love God and to love others. To love God and love neighbor. Often throughout Scripture, the Bible uses the word righteousness, referring to this love for God. It is obedience to God, it is affection for God, and it is right living in light of God. And the Scripture uses the word justice often to communicate this relationship with neighbor where we treat people with equity and rightly as God would have us. And so the church celebrates success when we observe spiritual growth in people. When we see relationships healed, bodies healed, emotional health restored. We measure success when people serve and are generous. And these are just some of the good works for which the church was created that are mentioned in Ephesians 2.10. We are are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And now the government looks at the church and says, hmm, that is largely intangible, the contribution to society. And it grants not-for-profit status to the church because the church, by nature, is good for the community. There are a few reasons why the church would have non-profit status. The first is that it's not for profit. Simple enough. The second is that so that when you give generously, you are not taxed twice on the income you received and the gift that you give. 
But historically, churches benefit their communities by creating schools, hospitals, charities, mobilizing grassroots efforts to provide disaster relief, promote healthy and stable families. And the church fights against common enemies of violence, disaster, homelessness, drug, alcohol, and sex abuse to contribute to the common good. And so the church, measured by its contribution to the common good, which is rooted in its nature, loving God and loving neighbor, is justified in its existence. The church, as the people of God, should not merely proclaim the news, the good news that God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus, but should be good news in its neighborhood. And thereby, that's the means by which the church contributes to society's goal of human flourishing, which is its third justification. So here's the societal justification. The message of the church and the activity of the church contribute immeasurably to the societal goal of human flourishing. You could say that's an assumption that human flourishing would be the goal of a society. Societies were founded to create safety and to protect people who would otherwise be be farmers living lives exposed to um, pirates and the elements. And some might call safety as integral to human flourishing. Charles Taylor argues in A Secular Age that human flourishing has become the singular goal of society. And if you look around, if you open the news app or the newspaper, whichever you pick, the headlines will reveal to you all of the areas across the world where humans are not flourishing. And if you log in perhaps to your favorite um, self-help blog or how-to YouTube channel, you're going to find instruction in, after instruction on how to live a life that flourishes, where things work, your car works, your kitchen works. And if you're to open the Instagram app, you're going to find pictures of humans flourishing all over. And so I, I think about it a, lo- a little bit like a solar system. Society has placed the earth at the center of the solar system. And it said, human flourishing is the center and substance of the solar system. Everything we do orbits around this goal of human flourishing. And the church now comes in and says, much like Galileo, wait, 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 you got it wrong. Something else is at the center that holds everything together. The sun. And if you get the sun in the center, guess what? The earth functions a lot more like it should, held in its orbit, rotating at the perfect speed. And I think that when the church comes in with this message saying, put put God at the center, human flourishing will thrive when God is at the center, is received a little bit like Galileo's message. Well, you're you're crazy. How could that be? That can't possibly be. But when you get the sun right, when you get the center right, everything else falls into its place and thrives. 
And when you find that the God who created life is for human flourishing and the church is for human flourishing in line with society's one goal, though presenting a different means to achieve it, you will find life as it was meant to be lived. And the church proclaims this news. This is the news. That humans will flourish, reconciled to God through Jesus. And contributes that message to society's goal for its people to thrive. Okay? Society, you want humans to flourish? Let us tell you how. Here is the way. But the church often proclaims that good news, but then on the map, or basically on the way they think about things, we still talk about the sun rising. Well, the sun's not rising, they're spinning. All of life has to be oriented around this perspective that the center is the center and that everything orbits around God and must live tangibly this good news. And so what I want to do in justifying that the church contributes to society's goal of human flourishing, I want to open the scriptures and I want to do something that they don't recommend you do in preaching class. I want to start at page one and we'll end on the last page. We're going to talk about all of the scriptures in one sermon. So if you have your Bible, would you open it to the first page? And I'm going to mention different, um, different references, and you'll always be turning to the right. Because this 30,000-foot overview of Scripture, I believe, will demonstrate to you that God is for human flourishing. The church is for human flourishing, both in word and in action. And therefore, the church is justified in its existence. So, the very first page of the first book, in the beginning, God created. God spoke. And light and plants and water and animals came into being. And God created a man and placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. And God looked around the creation and he said, it's good. It's good. And then he looked at Adam all alone and said, oh, it's not good. And so he created a helper for Adam, Eve. And all of a sudden, creation was complete. And God says, it's very good. The design is flawless. Adam and Eve walked with God, talked with Him, lived life, connected and partnered with God. They were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and guess what? When they worked, they produced fruit. They didn't strive aimlessly in the garden, tools didn't break in the garden. Things were as they should be. Life was as it should be. Humanity flourishing by design as it should be. And you turn the page to Genesis 3 and we're introduced to a new character in the story who says, did God really tell you not to eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? Is he really withholding from you the secret nugget to human flourishing? Could there be more? 
And Adam and Eve, believing the lie, believing that God was not for them as he was, took the fruit and ate it, hoping that it might provide for them some sense of flourishing that they already did not experience in the garden, where they reality, in reality experienced it in full. And sin entered the world. This rebellion against God, disobedience, introduced an entire world of disarray and disorder. Everything that had been functioning flawlessly was now broken. The relationship with God was severed. As though now humans were attempting to live life unplugged from the source of life. Relationships were broken. Pain increased in childbearing. And think child rearing, not merely having a child, but the pain of raising a child. Marital relationships were strained. Where once there was a partnership, now there was enmity. And tools broke. And blackberries thrived. And you could say all was not as it should be. If you continue turning the pages of Scripture, Genesis 4 uh, will tell you about this further spiral as things break and humans human flourishing ceases. One of the key things to note in this portrayal or this expose of the demise of human flourishing is that the opposite of flourishing is death. I looked it up in a dictionary. The antonym of flourishing is death. And death is introduced in the fall and is the plot of all humanity from that moment on. In Genesis 12, God speaks. We read this a moment ago. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. He speaks to a man named Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Flourished so that he might spread flourishing. And the means by which God is going to accomplish that flourishing in Abraham's life and in the nations because of him is found in Genesis 18:19. God says, I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. By loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. By walking rightly before God and living rightly before others. Sure enough, God did make Abram into a great nation. This hundred-year-old man with no children became a great nation. In fact, so great that as they fled, is- fled Israel into Egypt, to find food during famine, Pharaoh saw them all come in and thought, I could put them to work. They spend the next 400 years in slavery, crying out to God to remember his promise to Abraham that he would bless them and they would be a blessing. And God appointed Moses and said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh leads Israel out into the wilderness to follow God in freedom And God speaks to Moses and gives him the law. And when you hear the word law, you don't think good news. When you hear the law, the first thing that pops into my mind is not 
human flourishing. Yet the law can be summed up in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Righteousness. And love your neighbor as yourself. Justice. The means by which the blessing will come to Abraham and the nations. One of these laws is in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, which highlights the goodness or the contribution to human flourishing that the law provides. Leviticus 19, verse 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor. And for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. The law is designed for human flourishing. And as Israel followed the way of God, keeping righteousness and justice, they entered into the promised land, where they soon saw other other gods and other nations who looked like they had it all together. And they begin to lust after human flourishing, this idea, as they examine the way the other nations lived and followed their gods. And so God delivered them into the hands of these nations and said, sure, you can follow them, see how it works. And then they would cry out to God and he would send a judge who would deliver them from the hand of their enemy and free them again, restore them to right relationship with God. But they would do it again and again and again. And pretty soon they said, forget it, we just want to be like these nations. We want a king. So Saul is appointed king, the quintessential man, the picture of human flourishing. And even while he is reigning, God is raising up his successor, David. And David is famous for writing the Psalms. Look at Psalm 1, verse 1, the first word of the Psalms, which sets the course for what now we might call wisdom literature, this idea of the way the world works, which is designed for human flourishing. Psalm 1, 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man is weaker than it is. The the picture that comes into my mind when I hear blessed is the man is I think, if I don't walk in the counsel of sinners, then I will be blessed. And I create a causal statement that my action will elicit some blessing. What's happening in Psalm 1 is, there's a word for that, by the way. There's a different word used here, which is descriptive. This is a state of being. This is the way the world works. Flourishing. Happy is the man who walks this way who delights in the law of the Lord, which I may remind you is to love God and love your neighbor, which is the the means by which God is going to bless His people and the nations to flourish. And Psalm 1 really introduces wisdom literature. It's in the the writing section, but you've got, um, you've really got this way of, of right living, following Yahweh that leads to flourishing and the way of wrong living that leads away from Yahweh and leads um, to death. And wisdom literature here, now in the Proverbs, the next book in the Bible, does not ignore the fact 
that the message of good news must be coupled with the activity of good news. Proverbs 27, 14 says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. No matter how good the message is, if it is done in a way that is insensitive or cruel or thoughtless or not good news to your neighbor, it will be counted as cursing. And so the, the right way to live now as the people of God is to proclaim the good news that God is on a mission to reconcile all people to himself, giving them life as it was meant to be lived, and yet live as a people who experience that life and bring that life to others. Following the wisdom literature, the kings are reigning and leading the nation into destruction. The prophets are God's means by which he calls them back to himself. He says, return, walk rightly before me and love your neighbor. And Israel fails and fails and fails. And so God sends them into exile, into Babylon. No longer is the temple the center of their, of their nation. They're foreigners and outsiders. Yahweh is not mentioned. They disagree with the policies and practices of the nation. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 5, they are commanded to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Even in exile, the people of God are good news to a nation they disrespect, to a nation that has taken them captive, to a nation that has reviled their God. The Old Testament concludes with these prophetic writings and you turn the page into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, which begins with the genealogy of Jesus. This genealogy demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Jesus is the means by which Abraham will be blessed and the nations will be blessed through him. This genealogy demonstrates that Jesus is the true and greater David. The one who achieves for his people what they cannot achieve for themselves. Namely, to reconcile them to God and empower them to love their neighbor. And when Jesus came, he certainly came preaching good news. Matthew 5 is a famous sermon. Jesus' first sermon, the Beatitudes begin it. And he says in verse 3 of Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed, 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 blessed. Rejoice and be glad. 
You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And what Jesus has done as he comes preaching good news is he's preaching the good news that humans flourish when they follow the king of an upside-down kingdom. Blessed is the, it's the same. It's the same idea as Psalm 1. Flourishing is the, or happy is the one. Happy are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Because they've got the center right. They're following the right king. And it's all backwards. Jesus not only preached good news, though, declaring that humans could flourish in his kingdom as they followed him, reconciled to God as they were intended to be, he also became good news. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as you scan through the Gospels, time and time again, Jesus had compassion on the crowds and he did not neglect the message of good news, but he stepped in to meet their imminent need. And he became good news to them. And the crescendo of Jesus' life as good news is his death and resurrection, which he died to to take the curse of sin in order to reconcile people back to God and rose again to give them life as it was meant to be lived. So this is now, okay, that right there, the gospel, is the good news that the church proclaims and must proclaim. Society needs good news. And so our tendency is to think, oh, it's time to get preaching. Time to preach. And too many of us grab a sign, proverbial sign even, say, this is what I believe, believe it and it will be good for you, without the taste of salt or the aroma of sweetness at all in the neighborhood. And so you have to continue reading the story and you get to the epistles, namely 1 Peter, where Peter's instructing the church on how it might proclaim the good news as well as be good news in the neighborhood, working for human flourishing. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You must proclaim that news. But he continues in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And he continues to flush out what that looks like. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free and flourishing and abundant, delighting in God, reconciled to God, not using that freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. 
So you've got the church proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. But you have the church being the best neighbors, being the, the best citizens for the Lord's sake. Living righteously for the Lord's sake and justly for the sake of neighbor. And in the story of God, we find ourselves here today in the message that the church lives in this era, proclaiming this message and being this news. But if you continue turning in the scriptures to the last book, we begin at the beginning, we end at the end, and surprise, surprise, the end is much like the beginning. In Revelation, the story ends as it began. Life as it was meant to be lived, in the presence of God, walking with God, talking with God, bearing fruit. No pain. The curse has been broken. The effect of sin has been reversed. And in fact, that great enemy to human flourishing has been done away with completely and finally. The resurrection of Jesus conquered death. Death has no more dominion over people. Meaning that life might abound, humanity might flourish alive forever in Jesus. So the church proclaims this good news again and again and again. And the question's asking, sure, that's fine, you preach what you want to preach, but are you actually going to be good news? Are you going to be as Israel in Babylon? Are you going to be as the church in a conflicted and persecuted country? The message is so good. It's so good. That life with Jesus can be so good and last for eternity. The question becomes, how then shall we be good news? Matching our actions with the message in our neighborhood. How do we do this? As I mentioned earlier, yes, we give generously and we serve. And we step in to meet the practical needs of the community much like Jesus did. One of the things that we do together is we take initiative. I mentioned, I mentioned Coffee Cart, which started 25 years ago. And it started as a very practical observation. Kids were hanging out in the back of the parking lot because they had to park two hours before school began. So someone in the church said, I wonder if we could do something that would like make this place a little more welcome than the parking lot. Started serving coffee and pastries to students. The city's still trying to figure out how to get help kids in this way in West Lynn. FPNO started because a church in the area had been running the program and had been flourishing and foster parents had been benefiting so much they lost their building uh, and they had to meet, start meeting in a school where they could not now function and run F, FPNO. And so Liz saw 
the opportunity and said, I think we could do this. I think we could benefit our neighborhood by stepping into Be Good News here. So they met yesterday. You know how Celebrate Recovery started? It didn't start because we just said, let's start a Celebrate Recovery program. It started because Bridges to Change moved into the apartments at the end of the street. And all of a sudden, there were a bunch of people in our neighborhood whose lives were in transition, who were recovering from hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Oh, you know what? I bet we could open the... I bet we could be good news in our neighborhood and just meet them where we're at, feed them a meal every Friday. It will take that kind of initiative from the church to be good news in the neighborhood. Ongoing. Consider, consider the needs and opportunities around you. And then personally, and here's, here's where the rubber meets the road, if it's true, if the message that you preach is true, that God is at the center and that everything else orbits around Him, my uh, human flourishing, my life and all of the activities, then they must reflect the reality that God is at the center. It might start by taking out your calendar and saying, does this calendar make it look like God's at the center and that I care about human flourishing? You might have to look at your budget and say, does this budget reflect that God is at the center of everything? So pause and, and reflect on how you've structured your life to be good news. And then finally, one of the really most tangible ways to be good news is to show hospitality. Eric talked about this last week. Hospitality is welcoming the other, someone who's not like you, and making them a friend, treating them with love. And this summer, we're asking every person to throw a party in their neighborhood simply to practice this kind of hospitality, just to say, you're different than me. You live in a different house than me. But come on over. I want to welcome you. We should be friends. Neighborhoods where people are connected and know each other are neighborhoods that people want to live in, which means that you're contributing to human flourishing as people sense safety and an understanding from neighbors who care about them. But then finally, in some sense, this question naturally concludes the Ask series. Because people who believe in the supernatural and have a transcendent worldview as full of hope, who live humbly in unity as they follow the Bible, who love people different than themselves, who live as Jesus followers, not imposing their beliefs on others, those are the people who both proclaim good news and are good news to their neighbors. So may I pray for you as we do this together. Spirit, would you help us? Would you rewire us? Connect us again to the source of life. God, would you, would you drive the message, uh, the message of good news deep into us? And would you weave into our lives rhythms and patterns of being good news in our neighborhood so that no one could even ask the question? And that when they do ask the question, they would say, wow, Praise be to God that the church is here. Lord, would you help us as we now multiply and scatter and go be the church in our little neighborhoods? Would you help us to share the same passion and focus and centricity on Jesus as we do together? We need your help 
In your name, amen.